Why? Why do they have to put their feet in the stocks? I mean, up until that point, their trip to the city of Philippi had been relatively normal for their missionary travels. They arrived in the city, preached the good news about Jesus. Some people that heard them believed and were baptized. And then that girl started following them. You know, the one with the demon. Paul got annoyed after a while because the girl kept yelling over and over and over again, These are two servants of the Most High God! After a while, Paul got fed up, cast the demon out of her in Jesus' name, and then went about his business. But the thing was that the girl with the demon was a slave. And when her owner was a wealthy businessman, when he realized what had happened, he got angry. See, he used that girl. He used her to make money. Because with that demon, she could tell people's fortunes. She was popular. She kept the customers coming in and paying. Now that the demon had left her, she couldn't tell fortunes anymore. She was just a normal slave. See, the wealthy businessman now had, had lost revenue. And so he reported Paul and his companion Silas to the authorities. And maybe that's why their feet were in the stocks. See, the, the ancient Roman Empire, they didn't care what you believed as long as you didn't make any trouble. And one important way that you could make trouble was to hurt business and, and therefore tax revenue. Profits had been lost, the tax base had now shrunk, and so Paul and his companion Silas were suffering in a Roman dungeon. The reality was that neither of them had, had broken any laws, but that didn't stop the police from brutally beating them. Now it was the middle of the night, midnight or so, and neither of them could sleep. They couldn't sleep because their feet were in the stocks, stretched uncomfortably far apart as a, as a method of torture to break the prisoner's spirit. So ask yourself, what would you do in that situation? If you were unjustly imprisoned, deprived of your rights, if you had been tortured without cause. Do you know what Paul and Silas did? Well, that story in Acts chapter 16, verse 25, tells us what they did. It says there that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. See, they were beaten, sleepless, tortured, and their response was to pray and to praise their God. 
Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, in our passage today, kind of has the feeling of a, of a hallmark card for us, doesn't it? Paul writes there, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. It kind of sounds like a hallmark card, but it was so much more than that for Paul. Paul wasn't an ancient self-help writer trying to show his readers how to become a better you. His message wasn't about positive thinking or self-actualization. No, Paul could say these things and mean it. He could say, rejoice, always, no matter the circumstances. And his readers, hearing these words read aloud to them in church on a Sunday, his readers would have listened because they lived in Philippi. The prison guard that was on duty that night who witnessed what Paul and Silas went through, that prison guard was now a part of their church. And so they knew from, from the, the stories they'd heard face to face that Paul meant what he said. He meant what he said when he said rejoice always. Paul wasn't saying think happy thoughts. He was saying rejoice even through trial, even through suffering, hardship, loneliness, torture. Rejoice because you are in the Lord. Paul says to rejoice because in verse 5 he tells us that the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. Paul says that we should rejoice instead of becoming anxious in verse 6. He says we never need to be afraid. We never need to worry. Rather, he says that we can ask God for whatever we need in prayer. He says this in verse 7. He writes, The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul writes that prayer gives us a peace that goes beyond understanding. He gives us a a peace that makes no sense. In prayer, God promises to give us peace. No matter the situation, no matter the circumstances, no matter the trials or challenges we face, Paul says that God offers us a peace that makes no sense. Now, the the pursuit of peace is as old as ancient history. It goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. When Cain killed his brother Abel, conflict, division, and violence have been a part of human history ever since the beginning. From the beginning of Genesis, when Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves to cover their nakedness, people have looked for inner peace to quell their their guilts, their fears, their doubts, and their shame. Everyone, everywhere, has pursued peace at one time or another. Now, some focus their pursuit on external peace, external peace. And in fact, much of the the activism and, and the protests that we see in our society right now are seeking this. 
You've heard the chant. No justice, no peace. That chant resonates because the truth is that without justice, any cessation of overt violence is just a pause in the hostilities. Without justice, humans can't live together. We can't unite. We can't trust each other. We can't approach each other without fear. The pursuit of justice is, is a pursuit for external peace. It's a pursuit of a society in which humans can live together without violence, without hatred, without racism, without degrading others' dignity. Many people pursue external peace. Many others of us pursue internal peace. People seek Zen, enlightenment, centeredness. Or we just seek the the assurance that, that we're okay. We just want to know that we're loved, that we're accepted by someone. We want to know that we're enough. We want to know that we have value, that we have worth. We pursue internal peace so that we can look ourselves in the mirror and say with Stuart Smalley that I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. But sometimes, sometimes they put your feet in the stocks. Sometimes powerful forces way beyond our control do violence to us, do violence to our community. Sometimes the world moves far away from external peace and and you and I can do little or nothing to stop it. War breaks out. Disease disrupts everything in the normal course of life. People who don't know you are prejudiced against you despite the fact that you haven't done anything to deserve their hatred. You pursue justice. You pursue peace. But you come a little too close to somebody's bottom line. And that person makes you pay for it. When your your feet are in the stocks, there's not a lot of peace and in self-affirmation. You may be good enough or smart enough, but, but the reason that you're in the dungeon is that people do not like you. So what do you do with that in that moment? Is your, your mantra, your self-talk, is it enough to give you internal peace in the midst of a world that's against you when the hope of a comfortable life has been lost? The truth is that that a hallmark Christianity will not help you much in suffering. Just telling yourself to rejoice won't solve anything. It won't solve anything because true peace doesn't come from within. No matter how many retreats, therapy sessions, yoga classes, or relaxing vacations you go on. Peace isn't inside you waiting to rise up to the surface and just make everything in your life all right. Peace doesn't come from within, but it doesn't come from without either. 
no matter how many petitions, protests, or political actions you may take, there will still be evil forces, there will still be selfish people, there will still be government authorities who have the power to put your feet in the stocks, regardless of how much justice you've thought, fought for, and how much better things have gotten over time. See, we pursue peace because we desperately desire it. We pursue peace, but so often we're looking for it in the wrong places. Peace isn't found in our circumstances. And peace isn't found deep inside either. At least not the kind of peace that that Paul is talking about in Philippians 4. This peace... This peace doesn't come from without or from within. No, true peace, divine peace, peace that doesn't make any sense, that kind of peace comes from above. Oddly enough, there's a a two-letter word that's the key to understanding what it is that allowed Paul and Silas to pray and praise God in, in the middle of a dungeon. It's one tiny preposition that explains what this piece is all about. It's the word in. Paul says that we are to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. See, the hope of of tortured Christians is that they are in Christ. That, That despite the distance between heaven and earth, We believe that the Christian is united to Christ by faith and the power of God's own spirit. We rejoice because we are in the Lord, because he is near, because he's with us, because he will never leave us or forsake us. This is part and parcel of the Christian message, that the God who made us was not content to be away from us. No. God came near to us. In the midst of our pursuit of peace, God pursued us. God did that in in the incarnation when, when the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. God became united with our humanity so that we so that we could be united with him and his divinity. And in the process of uniting heaven and earth in the person of Jesus Christ, he brought peace. Paul writes elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He says these words, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. See, he, the Lord Jesus Christ, he went far and wide to bring God's peace, a peace that comes from above, a peace that doesn't make any sense to any of us 
Because it doesn't have anything to do with us and our efforts. We don't find it. No, in Christ, peace has come to find us. Peace came looking for us, pursuing us, offering himself for us so that we can have what we've always been looking for. See, when you realize that, when you realize that that peace personified, the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, that, that, that he came looking for us, when you realize that, you begin to understand what the gospel is all about, what the Christian message is all about. But as we understand the gospel, we have to recognize the fact that peace doesn't come cheap. No, it comes, Paul said in Ephesians 2.13, that it comes by the blood of Christ. See, our peace, our peace was in Christ's death. Our gain was in his sacrifice. Our homecoming was his abandonment. Our victory was his defeat. God's peace doesn't make any sense because the gospel message doesn't make any sense. Why would God die? Why why would he suffer torture and mockery? Why would he go through death? It's an incredible mystery. And the only answer that the Bible gives us is that God so loved us. And because he so loved us, Now he is our peace. He so loved us and gave himself for us so that we could enjoy the peace that passes understanding. When we come to realize that peace is found in Christ, the question comes for us then is, how do we take hold of that peace? How how do we grab onto it? And the first of all, the, the answer is not in, in trying harder and in doing more and proving ourselves to God or to others or to ourselves. And we take hold of this peace. We take hold of it freely offered in Christ by bringing everything to him in prayer. And that's it. Just by going to God in faith, coming to him in prayer, just talking to him, asking him for what we need, but by thanking him for what we have, by lifting our needs up to him. When we do that, he pours out his blessings, his grace, his peace upon us. He reminds us of his presence. He reminds us of his unfailing love. He fills our hearts and guards our hearts and minds with his peace. Last week we said that that distraction disrupts discipleship. And, And that a key reason that we don't grow spiritually is that we're too distracted to do so. And one of the the, the worst things about being distracted is that it takes us away from prayer. And if we're not in prayer, we're not receiving and experiencing the peace of God. It means we're not growing. We're not drawing near. 
This week, I want to encourage you. Now that you've taken stock of of your life and, and how distracted you really are, carve out time this week for undistracted prayer. Could be five minutes, could be 50 minutes. Doesn't matter how long it is. Even if you aren't a praying person, even if you're not somebody that that prays on a regular basis, even if you don't believe, what do you have to lose? What harm could it do? Can't do any harm, but if this passage is true, you have everything to gain. God is offering everything to you in prayer. So pray. Pray and see if God doesn't meet you with his peace. Now this promise of a peace that passes understanding, a peace that makes no sense to us, this promise is a promise we can take to the bank of heaven any time about anything. So I want to encourage you to take hold of this verse, to boldly go to God in prayer. Boldly go to him, ask what you need, and he will do it. He'll answer your call. He'll do it when you're full. He'll do it when you're hungry. He'll do it. He'll do it when you're tired. He'll do it when you're refreshed and renewed. He will. He'll do it when you're happy. He'll do it when you're joyful. And he'll do it when you're being tortured, stuck in a dungeon with your feet in the stocks. That night in the Roman jail, Paul and Silas were utterly powerless. They weren't even able to sleep. And so, in, in response to their situation, they offered their thanksgiving and their requests to God in prayer and in praise. That night, as a result of their prayers and in his mercy, God sent an earthquake to, to open the doors of that prison. But rather than leave, rather than leave, Paul and Silas loved their enemy. They loved the jailer, the man who had most likely beaten them earlier that day. See, the jailer in the prison that night, he was ready to kill himself with his own sword for shame at his failure to do his duty and keep the prisoners locked away. Paul and Silas, rather than say good riddance to bad rubbish, they stopped him. They told him the good news about Jesus and the peace that he gives. And many years later, that same prison guard was likely sitting in the church in Philippi listening to the words of this letter being read aloud. And that prison guard knew that Paul was no hallmark Christian. He knew that that on Paul's lips, joy and peace were not mere platitudes. That Paul's joy and peace had saved his life. That Paul's joy and peace, Jesus himself, had become his joy and peace as well. And I pray for you. 
I pray that that same joy and peace would be yours too. Will you pray with me? Father God, what a privilege it is to come to you in prayer. To know that you promise to hear us when we call to you. That you promise to answer us. That you promise to meet us in prayer with your peace. Father, I pray for everyone listening today. That you would go to them by your Holy Spirit. That you would meet them in prayer with the peace of the Lord Jesus himself. I pray that they would know Christ, know his love, know his joy, know the peace that passes understanding. And God, I pray that as we commune with you, as we have fellowship with you in prayer, that our hearts would be full to overflowing, that you would enable us by your spirit to love others like like Paul did all those years ago, that we would not be hallmarked Christians, God, but that we would be people that know real and lasting peace resides in Christ and him alone. Give us the faith to believe it, the hope to endure whatever we go through, and the love to honor you, to, to, to care for and serve our neighbors, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.